Welcome back to Navy Yard, Nats fans, and head on over to Walters. It's going to be a big-time homestand for the Nats, and everyone is gathering at Walters before, during, and after the games in the AC or under the covered streetery. Walters is the place to be. This week's reservations are going fast, including those for Sunday, July 4th, when Walters will be opening at 9 in the morning for the early game. Make your reservations now at waltersdc.com slash reservations. I got a chance to check out Walters in person this week, and let me tell you, it's going to be hopping this holiday weekend. Make sure to check out their self-poured beer wall while hanging out with friends and watch every major sporting event on their numerous TVs. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Turner is the all-time Nationals leader in triples, but he has just one this year. That was on June 15th against the Pirates. He's due for a triples binge. The 1-1. Swing a line drive to right toward the corner. Chasing Margot. He can't get it. It's one up off the fence. Turner racing for second. He's going for three. The relay throw for Brasso. The head first dive. He is safe. And Turner is hit for the cycle on his birthday. And this crowd knows it. And they salute Turner with a standing ovation. Look at the bench, Dave. Look at the bench. The dugout. Triple, that's a double for any other human being. But Trey Turner legs out the triple, his second of the year, and his third career cycle. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, July 1st, 2021. Bobby Bonilla Day. Happy Bobby Bonilla Day to you and yours, along with Nationals Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The Nationals are two games above 500 for the first time since the 2019 season. A 15-6 smashing of the Tampa Bay Rays at Nationals Park on Wednesday to complete a two-game sweep. The Nats now are 40-38. and They have begun this brutal seven-game homestand 3-0. The Nats have won 14 of 17, and the offense is alive. 15 runs on 18 hits and six walks, 10 of 17 with runners in scoring position. The Nats, in the midst of this four-game winning streak, have outscored opposing teams 32-14 and totaled 13 home runs. I don't know if we can say that the offense has been fixed, but we can say that the offense, like the team, is on fire. This is some kind of run that the Nats are on, Mark. Happy Bobby Bonilla Day to you, Al, if you celebrate that. If July 1st is Bobby Bonilla Day, I'm going to petition that June 30th should forever be Trey Turner Day. 
because not only is it his birthday, but it's also the day in which he hit for the cycle for the third time in his career matching the major league record. And so if Trey Turner has earned a day on the calendar, I think that June 30th is worthy of that designation because a lot of stuff happened in this game. Obviously, we're going to get to it all. But above all else, Trey Turner hit for the cycle again for the third time in five years. He hit for the cycle. He just turned 28. Nobody's ever done it four times in their career. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say he's going to do it again because he's going to give himself plenty of opportunities before this is all said and done. Well, and I think when we write Trey Turner Day, we should spell Day D-E-A because we spell Trey T-R-E-A, and that's the way that that should officially be from this point moving forward in perpetuity. So yes, happy Trey Turner Day on June 30th as we are in the midst of Bobby Bonilla Day on this July 1st. It was something else, and you know, it's so funny, right? Kyle Schwarber is hitting home runs like crazy. The Nats on Wednesday score 15 runs, and Kyle Schwarber does next to nothing. You know, like, go figure. Like, that's the way these things go. Kyle Schwarber strikes out three times. He goes 0 for 4, did have a walk, did have a hit by pitch. But it was basically a non-factor, and yet still, the Nats scored 15 runs. Man, did you have some infrequent home run hitters hitting homers (laughs) in this game. We'll get to those guys as the conversation progresses. But no doubt, Trey Turner was the man in this game on Wednesday. What a job. Like you said, it was his birthday, and he hits for the cycle. Four for four, homer, triple, double, single, two stolen bases, RBI, four runs. He finally was given a chance to sit down. Davey Martinez pulling Trey for pinch hitter Ryan Zimmerman in the bottom of the seventh inning. When's the last time Trey Turner didn't play in, forget about an entire game, just like a few innings in a game. It felt like, this almost felt like the end of the Ripken streak. Davey sitting Trey Turner in the latter innings of this game. Well, unfortunately, Al, the reason that he did that is because he jammed his finger on the slide in the third base, left middle finger, and he's day-to-day. So we will see. There's a big series coming up with the Dodgers, and they really, really hope that Trey Turner's in the lineup. You Knowing him, he's going to do everything he can to be in there, but it may take a few days for that, and you hope it's nothing worse than that. It's funny. When it happened, I, I had the same thought, like, oh, okay, they're up by enough. He got the cycle. Let's give him the rest of his birthday off. And then I started thinking his reaction when he slid into third base on the triple, he pounded his fist on the base, and I thought that was out of celebration. And maybe it was to some extent, but I think he also knew that it hurt. And again, you hope it's nothing more serious than just a jammed finger. Obviously, this here's a guy who's had finger issues in his career with injuries. So we'll see on Thursday. I wouldn't be shocked if he needs a day or two off, hopefully not given who they're going to be facing. But that didn't put a complete damper on the afternoon because that's still a remarkable thing that he did. And I mean, I don't know about you, but typically when there's a hitter who's a triple shy of the cycle, I don't even think about it because nobody's getting the triple except for Trey Turner. When it's him, I do look for it. And the moment the ball left his bat, I thought he's he's going for it. I mean, I don't know if he's going to make it, but he's going for it. And he did. The helmet was flying. He's racing the third. It was a close play, but he got in there and just an amazing thing to see a guy who I know he he says it's luck. It's a matter of, you know, getting pitches in the zone and, you know, just kind of getting lucky. I've said in the past that I think cycles are a little bit lucky. Obviously, you got to, you know, hit the ball well, which takes skill and whatnot, but just hitting the right hits at the right time is, is a little bit of luck. So got lucky today. But you have to have a certain set of skills to be able to do this. And there's a reason so few have done it multiple times because it takes that combination of speed, of power, and just the ability to put the bat on the ball enough to do that four times in one game. I think he's selling himself short. I think this is a significant accomplishment for him. Well, I think also, if you look at 
the frequency with which players hit for the cycle, you could argue it's more of a special achievement than throwing a no-hitter. And yet it never gets celebrated that way. But like, it is a big deal to hit for the cycle. It's not something people do often. Like the fact that Trey Turner is just the fifth guy in Major League history to hit for the cycle three times. That's it. That says a lot about how hard of a thing it is to do. And he goes out and he does it. You know, it's interesting you bring up him like slapping the third base bag because I remember him doing that. And I thought the same thing, that that was done in celebration. And on the Masson telecast, when Trey got removed, it was totally framed as, well, they're giving him rest. So that's interesting. So this was in no way about rest. This was Trey. He hurt the finger and it was bad enough to where Davey said, we got to get you out of the game. Otherwise, Trey would have stayed in the game, huh? I guess. I mean, you never know for sure. I mean, they were up by a comfortable amount, but not, you know, it wasn't at that point the the 10 run lead or whatever it wound up being. So maybe they would have left him. And now, <laughs> since we're, we're already on the subject, Juan Soto and Jordy Mercer also had to come out of the game. Soto cramped up his hamstring on his last at bat, that fly ball to the warning track. You could see him grab it. I was told that he's actually fine. Shouldn't be a big deal. He'll be good to go, most likely on Thursday. Mercer cramped up his quadricep, and they're still waiting to see day-to-day with him. But this was a brutally hot and humid day. 95 degrees at first pitch, heat index over 100. The game took over three and a half hours, in part because of your Tampa Bay Rays, Al, and their brilliant pitching strategy. How'd that work out for them in this one with the opener and everything that came after it? That was a long, rough day at the ballpark, and it's maybe not that surprising that at least in those two cases of uh, Soto and Mercer that they cramped up, that there were some issues. And Trey's wasn't the result of the heat, but you're crossing your fingers hoping all these things are not serious because that could have put a pretty big damper on this game. Yes, I will not let that jab just pass uh, unresponded <laughs> to. Uh, first of all, John Lester had a little bit to do with that game taking forever. And uh, I will take my raise in their 47-34 and 34 record and plus 75 run differential. Thank you very much. Uh, they were not very good on this Wednesday. That's for sure. But no doubt, the game was brutally long. I know everyone talks about pace of play. Maybe I'm on an island on this. I do think the bigger issue is the lengths of these games. And this game on Wednesday, my God, man. I mean, help us, please, okay? Three and a half hours to get this thing in. I just, again, how many people have time to sit and watch all of these games with how long they take? But anyway, the Nats are winning. That's what matters the most. And with Trey Turner and and, and the cycle, you know, he's back to hitting for power now. This had been a thing, right? He had not homered in forever. Well, here we are now. He hits that two-out first pitch solo homer to right center in the bottom of the fourth. That's his third homer in four games. He had hit just one home run since the start of games on May 18th. Now, all of a sudden, he's hit three home runs in four games. He's had himself some doubles here. He obviously had the triple in this game on Wednesday. So, you know, whatever slump Trey was in or whatever kind of funk he was in in terms of not hitting for power... That certainly seems to have gone bye-bye here. The Trey Turner, who we saw kill it earlier in this season, has very much been on display here over these last few games. Yeah, he's on fire again. Uh, Like you said, three out of four with the homer, and a couple have been to the opposite field, which, as I said, after the first one is a really good sign for that. The double was ripped down the line. He also stole two bases in this game. I don't know. I didn't see if anybody looked this one up. Has anyone ever hit for the cycle and stolen two bases in the same game? This was everything you could ask for a guy in one game, and he did it in six innings before coming out. That's a truly remarkable individual performance there, and he's doing it at a great time because we know that Schwarber's not going to keep this up forever. (laughs) They do need Trey Turner and Juan Soto to start carrying the load a little bit more, especially in the power department, and we are starting to see signs from both of them that they can do that. 
Yeah, your slash line now for Trey Turner on the year. Batting average, 318. On base percentage, 367. Slugging percentage, 513. Terrific season being put forth by Trey Turner. But the Nats scored 15 runs. It wasn't just Trey Turner on his birthday hitting for the cycle. That was the guy responsible for all of this. Juan Soto had himself a good game. Three for five with three singles, a walk, and a stolen base. Josh Bell had himself a good game. Two for three with a couple of singles and a couple of walks. I tell you, Josh Bell seems to be in a very good place right now. I think we would like to see him maybe hit for a little more power, but he is looking confident at the plate. He continues to have this thing of when he's down and counts, especially with two strikes, he does well. He had that one-out ribby single on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' four-run third. He drew a couple of walks in this game. You really have to like where Josh Bell is at right now, and you really have to like where Starling Castro. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. What did you just say? Who did you just say? I said it. You have to like where Starling Castro is at right now. He is alive, people. He is capable, people. We're seeing it here. You know, Castro does have that history of really bad in the first halves of seasons, better in the second halves of seasons. We're not technically in the second half yet, but maybe he's been fooled into thinking it's the second half, just like he maybe has been fooled recently into thinking he was hitting an extra innings with some of those run-producing doubles. But Castro homered. He homered on Wednesday. Waka to Castro. Swing a high drive, right center field. Well hit. Kiermaier going back, looking up, and there it goes. A two-out, two-run homer on an 0-2 pitch in that Nats three-run six. He went two for four with the homer, a two-run single, and a walk. I mean, everyone was getting on the act. Jordy Mercer hit a home run in this game. This was a festive day at Nationals Park. So in the last couple of days, we have seen Starlin Castro, Jordy Mercer, and Victor Robles all home. I know. That's a trifecta. What kind of odds could you have gotten on all three of those guys homering in a couple of days? Castro is looking much better. That homer was a bomb to center field. I mean, really well struck. The two-run uh, single was uh, really good in the third inning. They drew a walk as well. And I want to go to Josh Bell real quick. You mentioned him, they, you know, maybe not hitting for power as much. He's like, I actually think those singles today were more impressive because that was situational hitting. He's coming up with guys on base, like you said, two strikes, a couple cases got the bat on the ball and got it through the infield to drive in some runs. That's what they really need from him. The home runs will come because, you know, when he really connects on a ball, he's going to hit a long way. But if he can have the bat control to not just be that all or nothing swing and actually just hit the ball solidly with two strikes and runners on base, to me, that's a great sign for him. So I I liked those two. There was a lot to like about the offensive performance in this game. And like you said, 15 runs with Kyle Schwarber not doing anything. That's what's so bizarre, and that's what makes you feel so good about where the Nats are right now. Look, I still am not ready to say, like, the offense has arrived and all of the offensive struggles for so much of this season are a distant memory at this point, but clearly, you have to like the way that this thing is trending and that the Nats, you know, they're hitting all these home runs, which is great to see. Everyone's kind of getting in on the act. There clearly is this happy nature, this happy-go-lucky nature to the way the Nationals are playing right now. They're having fun playing, that's for sure. It's really good to see the Nats doing as they are doing. You know, you also had something like, and I always like when this happens in a blowout win like this, a guy comes off the bench and ends up with multiple hits. Like Josh Harrison comes off the bench on Wednesday and ends up having a multi-hit game. Lead-off single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the seventh. One out, two-run double in the Nationals' four-run eighth inning. Like, you couldn't help but get in on the act in this game, even if you didn't start the game. 
there was a moment you thought it was going to be a grand slam. He was up with the bases loaded and the chance for them just to completely blow this one out of the water. I think they had at least four at-bats with the bases loaded in this game and got two hits. So there you go, another one for the Nationals. Castro's first two-run single came with the bases loaded. Harrison's double came with the bases loaded. Good signs all there. Jan Gomes, an RBI single, another hit. We said Soto. I mean, Parra didn't really do much, but they didn't need it on this day. Good stuff all around. We talked about it, I don't know, a week ago or so. I said, as the weather starts to heat up here, this has happened every year. They start to drive the ball. It starts to carry. And we're seeing that. Now, it's going to cool off a little bit this weekend. It's going to be rainy. We'll see uh, what happens there. And then they close the first half in San Diego and San Francisco, where the ball is not going to travel, especially at night. So let's see, can they keep this up out there? That might be the the indicator of if they're just taking advantage of hot East Coast summer weather, or if they really are putting together some good at-bats, if they can do it out there in the uh, marine layer on California. And they're beating good teams, which had not always been the case here this season. When the Nats were struggling, a lot of the wins came against two, right? The Pirates and the Marlins and the Diamondbacks and the Orioles. And there really was this concern, I thought, of, man, can the Nats hang with the big boys They're not only hanging with the big boys, the Nats are beating the big boys. You know, we kind of initially saw this with that four-game split with San Francisco at Nationals Park a few weeks ago. But since then, you take three or four from the Mets at Nationals Park. You sweep the two-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. You take that makeup game from the Mets on Monday night at Nats Park. Now you sweep two games from the Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, that's no small feat. The Rays are a really good, shrewd team, and the Nats took it to them over these last two games. That, that's that got to up the confidence in this team with this gauntlet that the Nats are trying to run going into the All-Star break. And now it really comes, right? Four games against the Dodgers, four games at the Padres, three games at the Giants. Why can't the Nats go out and win each of these remaining series before the All-Star break? Like, it's not going to be easy, but you don't laugh at that suggestion at this point with the way the Nats are going right now. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's look at how they've done this season now against some of the better competition. Against the Mets, they're five and three, but they've won four of their last five against them. Against the Rays, three and one to end their season series. Giants, two and two, but we felt like they played well. They looked like they held up with them. The Dodgers swept them way back in early April. That was not the complete Nationals roster at that point. They were just starting to get a few guys back from the COVID list, so they clearly were not at 100%. Let's see now this weekend how they stack up with them and then, of course, the Padres. But they are at minimum holding their own against elite competition and in some cases thriving against them. I don't think they take the field right now and feel inferior to anybody. Maybe by the end of the weekend when they face the Dodgers four times, maybe they'll feel a little differently about that. But I think right now they're feeling as confident as they can no matter who they're playing. And oh, by the way, the Nationals now have a positive run differential. Hey, We talked about how the Nats had not been two games above 500 since 2019. I don't know when this was. The last time the Nats had a positive run differential, they obviously had it at some point this year because they were 1-0. But man, it had been forever. I mean, the Nats had been in that double-digit territory in terms of negative run differential for the longest time, plus two. Now, are the Nats on the season in the run differential department? So great to see that. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, so we have all had that dream. Tie game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than just one shot to swing for the fences. That's because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. You heard that right. New users get up to $1,000 back in side credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back Inside credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same-game parlay and always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. All you have to do is download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code CHAT. And games on Thursday afternoon include the Minnesota Twins at the Chicago White Sox at 210. Battle two good pitchers, Jose Barrios, who has an ERA of 341, and Carlos Rodon, who has an ERA of 206. Take the under. 21 plus and present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanal.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789, or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. The bases loaded this year. The Rays have hit 333. They have hit three slams. The pitch swung on and popped up. Playable shallow right. Mercer out. Soto coming in. Soto moving in to his right. Makes a one-handed grab, and the inning is over. John Lester walks the tightrope. And a little Houdini act, he gets to the other side. Well, the Nats scored 15 runs on Wednesday, and they needed to score a bunch of runs because John Lester was not good for a second consecutive start. John Lester coming off having been ravaged in his previous outing, that 11-2 loss at Miami last Friday night, seven runs in two and a third innings, was not much better in this game on Wednesday. Five runs in five innings. It was another one of these Lester outings, too, in which... He just didn't have it, and he sure didn't seem to have it from the get-go. Like, this wasn't like he started off well, and then things fell apart. This was, no, he didn't look good from the get-go here. And the fact that he actually ended up lasting five innings is almost like a minor miracle. I guess maybe you give him some credit for that. But, geez, it was not pretty. Gives up seven hits, including two homers, a double, and four singles. He issues two walks. 
He has just three strikeouts. He throws 54 strikes versus 42 balls. Another one of these games in which the strikes to balls ratio is nearly one to one. And John Lester, who just two outings ago had an ERA under four on the season, now has an ERA of 534 over 12 starts this season to go with a whip of 155. It was rough. It could have been worse. That's true. And the Nats did win. And that's what matters. But it's getting concerning here with John Lester. So I didn't think he had any chance to get through the fifth inning in this game. I thought by about the second that he was teetering on the brink there and I was looking for the bullpen to get up and running and some credit to him for getting through the fifth, that last inning, one, two, three inning. I think a lot of people were surprised when he hit for himself to be able to take the mound again. But I think that's also a reflection of the state of the bullpen, which was not in great shape going into this game. Fortunately, they were ahead by so much that it didn't really come into play. But you mentioned the ball and strike count. That's what's upsetting him the most. He's really down on himself for being behind in the count consistently, batter after batter. He says, if they're going to beat me, you know, I want them to hit the ball early in the count. He feels like he's just wasting these pitches and it's preventing him from having any chance to go deep in games. And he doesn't know why this is, why he's nibbling around like that, why he's just not throwing enough pitches over the plate. But it has consistently been a problem for him Falling behind 1-0, 2-0, puts him into bad counts, ends up creating these long at-bats, these long, drawn-out innings that are contributing to those long time of games. And he's been fortunate at times to get through it. The last couple times out, he has not been as fortunate. The good news, if there is something there, is that his velocity is up. He was throwing 92-93, and he was actually pretty pleased with that. And he said, physically, he feels good. So he said, there's no more like building himself up. There's no more, this is still the early stages for him of of trying to come back and, and get going this season. No, he's there physically. It's a matter of him not executing pitches. And he better have that figured out here at some point because eventually, we'd like to believe the Nationals are going to have a healthy rotation and somebody's going to be the odd man out. Hasn't happened yet. May still be a while till it happens. We keep doing this, but at the moment, John Lester's on the chopping block if that happens. Yeah, and you know some of these moments are not pretty. I mean, that home run by Yandy Diaz, that was brutal. Two out, full count, solo homer. That was a bomb that Diaz hit off Lester to left field. The homer going a projected 424 feet for StatCast. You mentioned the walks and the throwing of all these balls. Lester giving up a run top of the fourth. What does he do in that inning? Lead off six-pitch walk of Mike Brasso, and then you get the two-out RBI double by Randy Arena. Lester does, though, eat up five innings, like we said, so it could have been worse. Then came the Nationals' bullpen, and these days, man, do you really need a scorecard to keep track of who these relievers are? Andres Machado, Ryan Harper, Kyle Lobstein, and Kyle McGowan end up being the four relievers utilized by the Nats in this game. All told, a good job by the pen, one run in four innings. The guy who really stood out was Machado. Andres Machado is an interesting story, sort of shades of Paolo Espino. It's not nearly as extreme as Espino, but Machado had only ever thrown three and two-thirds regular season innings in the majors, and those innings came all the way back in 2017 with the Kansas City Royals. So here he is pitching in the majors for the first time in four years on Wednesday, and he throws two perfect innings with three strikeouts in his Nats debut. Strikes out Wander Franco on four pitches for the third out in the top of the seventh. So great job by Machado. Ryan Harper tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. That was good. What bothered you was Kyle Lobstein, all right, your guy coming in, the lefty, in the top of the ninth inning. It's 15-5. And he can't end the freaking game, okay? We talked about the length of this game, three hours, 37 minutes. I mean, I know it's Kyle Lobstein, but bro, can you just throw strikes and end the darn thing? And instead, 
Lobstein comes in, does strike out the first batter he faces, but then gives up a one-out walk followed by a one-out single. Davey Martinez has to pull Lobstein. Lobstein came in with a 10-run lead. McGowan comes in, gets the final two outs of the game, although even McGowan had some issues allowing an inherited runner to score on a two-out ribby single by Franco. Look, I mean, I don't think any of this matters, but man, that ninth inning, you're like, geez, can we please just get the third out and end the darn thing? That was painful. That was very painful, especially for those of us in the park sweating through that entire afternoon. I think um, you put a lobstein in that much heat, it's going to start to steam eventually. And uh, that did not go so well. But let's talk about Machado. That was impressive. I liked what I saw from him. Here's the backstory there. He wound up with the Nationals basically on a recommendation of Anibal Sanchez. They know each other from Venezuela. He pitched for Team Venezuela in the uh, Olympic qualifier, I think it was. And basically, Anibal like vouched for him. And that's the reason he wound up at AAA. And that's the reason they called him up when he had some good numbers there. Now, he's 28 years old. He hasn't had a shot in a while. So you have to wonder, like, what's going on with this guy? But he had good stuff. Six up, six down, struck out three, thrown 95, 96. You know, I'm sure the Rays didn't have much of a scouting report on him. But see now as, as teams start to get a little more info on him and, and how he does, maybe they will figure him out a little bit. But that was a nice little sign. And I'm just glad he finally got no game. He's been on the roster for like a week total between a couple trips up here and hadn't gotten no game yet. And I think he warmed up three times before he actually entered in this game because Lester was on thin ice the whole time and kept waiting for Machado to get the call. It finally happened. So good for him that he made the most of it. Can I ask, is there a reason Davey never pitches Jeffrey Rodriguez? I mean, Rodriguez is on the roster. You would have thought he would have been a candidate to pitch in this game. He ends up not pitching. I mean, you know, I don't lose sleep over Jeffrey Rodriguez not pitching, but they did just go through the stretch of 13 days and Rodriguez doesn't pitch. And you're like, why is the guy on the roster? Why are you wasting a roster spot on someone who you're not using? What is the deal there with with them like never pitching Jeffrey Rodriguez? I don't know. I thought this was the day we were going to see him for sure. Maybe they just really don't have that much faith in him and they're looking for a game that they're losing as opposed to a game they're winning, even though they're well ahead in this one. But he's an intriguing guy because he's got the stuff, but he's also so erratic that I think the fear is you put him into a game that you're ahead and he starts losing control. Now, how long do you stick with him? And then you got to get somebody else warmed up and maybe end up burning up more of your bullpen. But why is he on the roster if you're not going to use him? And I mean, they've been going with nine relievers for a long time now. And I know there have been times that they've maybe needed that many. I still feel like they'd be better off with another bench bat, especially given how banged up some of these guys are now. We'll see how long they go with this. But it is a little odd. I thought if ever there was a game he was going to come in, this was it with Lester leaving early. Yeah, I mean, if you don't trust him in a game in which you're ultimately up at one point by 10 runs, I mean, what exactly are we doing here with this guy on the roster? He's pitched twice since he got called up. He pitched on June 12th in a game against the Giants. He pitched on June 25th in a game at the Marlins. That's it. Why is he up here? And, you know, it's not like he's been a complete mess. He struggled in that outing at the Marlins, but the game against the Giants, he was good, as you may recall, four scoreless innings in that game. So, you know, it's two outings. If you don't trust him, don't have him on the team. You have plenty of other people you could call up. I just, I find that to be so strange that they won't go to him, like, at all right now. But whatever the case may be, the Nationals do win. They are rolling right now. Great job against the Rays. And now comes the next great test, a four-game series against the Dodgers at Nationals Park this weekend, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then the traditional July 4th day game, which is not just a day game, it's a morning game, right? 11.05 in the morning on Sunday. So Patrick Corbin versus Tony Gonsolin. 
is the matchup on Thursday night. Then it is Max Scherzer Friday night. It is our guy, Paolo Espino, against Clayton Kershaw on Saturday night. And then it is Joe Ross on Sunday, tentatively against Trevor Bauer. We'll see what happens with that. But this is another one of these measuring stick series. This is another big spot for Patrick Corbin, who has been better lately, you know, although he was very mixed in his last outing. So we still don't really know what to expect from him. But as we continue to try to assess, okay, what are the 2021 Nationals? Obviously, everyone feels so much better about them right now. You're going to really be in love with this team if they do say win, I don't know, three out of four against the Dodgers, which will not be easy. But at this point, it's not something you just completely dismiss either. No, I think there's a chance for them to compete with them. Certainly, if they're hitting the way that they are in this one, then they're not going to see Walker Bueller. And we'll see if they see Trevor Bauer or not on Sunday. So before that, it's Gonsolin and Urias and then Kershaw, who, as we know, they have hit at times, Clayton Kershaw. So let's see. As far as the opener goes, Patrick Corbin, I feel like he's a guy who should match up well with the Dodgers. And we've seen it happen at times. All their lefties in that lineup, if his slider is on and he's thrown his fastball over the plate, it's a really good favorable matchup for him. But as we've also seen with him against the Dodgers in game one of the NLDS, if he's not throwing strikes, he can get into big time trouble early and have to battle his way through it. So let's see what we get. Which version of him do we get? He's been better of late in general. So I'd like to see it, especially with the state of the bullpen. You'd love to see him set the tone with a good quality start there. And then you'd love to see the lineup continue to hit. Now, hopefully Turner and Soto are in the lineup on Thursday. If by chance one or even both of them are out, that's going to be a huge problem for them offensively because you'd love to keep taking advantage of the, the warm weather. Although I guess it's going to be cooler this weekend. There's a lot of rain, especially Thursday into Friday. So who knows? Maybe they don't even play Thursday. Yeah, could get another doubleheader scenario. And you know what? That might not be the worst thing in the world right now with the state of the bullpen and the Nats not having any off days here. I know you don't want to have to play two games in one day, but if you only have to cover 14 innings over a two-game stretch as opposed to 18 innings, that can perhaps end up being a good thing. Well, as we told you on the last installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, we have a very special guest for you on this installment of the pod, and we are pleased to bring that to you right now one of the best relievers in Nationals history, one of the heroes for that initial Nationals team in 2005, the closer, the relief ace, Chad Cordero. Mark and I had the pleasure of speaking with Chad recently, and we bring that conversation to you right now. All around RFK Stadium, from the expensive seats down low, the fans of the third base side who are jumping up and down, making the stands rock behind the Nationals dugout. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I haven't. Here's the pitch. Swing and a fly ball center field. Church back and over to his left weights. He's there. He's got it. He's got it. And the ball game is over. And the Washington Nationals have won their home opener. Fireworks again to close it out. And the first regular season game in Washington, D.C. since September of 1971 is in the books. The Washington Nationals are winners over the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight by the score five to three. They're all on the field to high five. Levon Hernandez shut him out for eight and a third. Chad Cordero came in to finish it off, and Vinny Castilla was the hitting star of the game with a double, a two-run triple, and as well a two-run homer at the 
chance for the cycle before being hit by a pitch in the eighth inning. Well, one of the things that we pride ourselves on doing here on the Nats Chat Podcast is honoring Washington, D.C. baseball history. It was, of course, the 2005 Nationals who marked the return of Major League Baseball to the nation's capital. This was a memorable team for many reasons. Among those reasons is the man who joins us now, Chad Cordero, who in 2005 had maybe the best season that any reliever has ever had in National Slash Expos history. He is number two on the franchise's all-time list for regular season saves. Chad, it is great to talk to you, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on very much. So we're now 16 years removed from that 2005 season. When that team comes up and you think about that season, what comes to your mind? For me, it was it's it's still you know, an honor to be one of that first team back. That's what comes to mind, you know, and being in a new spot and being in the nation's capital and having a chance to play in Washington, D.C., like where so much history is made on a daily basis. That's really what sticks out to me. But that first season was magical. You know, yeah, we, we might have finished, you know, at the bottom of the, of the NL East again. But at the same time, like how we started and how, and how we played was nobody really expected us to even have that much success. So it was just an honor for me, you know, to be a part of that first Nationals team and I still have a lot of fond memories of that first year. You actually did spend a little time with the Expos before that. So for those of you who made the trip down and made the conversion into the Nationals, describe for us what that feeling meant, especially when you got to RFK Stadium and were playing in front of a full house and when you saw what that meant to generations of D.C. fans who hadn't had baseball in 33 years. Yeah, it was exciting. Montreal's a great city. I, I love every minute of every day that I, that I spent in Montreal. It was unfortunate that they couldn't, you know, hold on to their baseball team because they didn't have a lot of passionate fans. But when we moved, made that move down to D.C., it was exciting. You know, they hadn't had baseball in about 30 years or so. You know, having a chance to play in your nation's capital, being a part of that, that first team, it was exciting for us. You know, and not knowing where really what to expect. We knew RFK was going to be, you know, a little bit older. There's going to be some bumps and, you know, like which we had quite a few of them at, <laughs> at RFK that, that first year. I remember our first um, exhibition game against, I think it was the Mets. When it was like, I think maybe low 30s, upper 20s. And we were all excited to go back into the locker room after after that first game because it was so cold to take a nice warm shower. And there was no hot water at all in that, in that place. So, you know, even though we had had to deal with stuff like that, it was it was still exciting, you know, to be able to play in front of packed houses, see see the stands moving up and down with, with the fans when they're jumping. It was kind of scary at the same time. Remind me of earthquake back home, but it was still a lot of fun to see. So with the stadiums, you have the unique distinction of having recorded the final out in each of three stadiums in terms of their usage as Major League Baseball stadiums, Olympic Stadium in Montreal, the stadium at which the Expos played games in Puerto Rico, and RFK Stadium in D.C. Which stadium did you like the best? Oh, I don't know. For me, it's probably, it probably has to be RFK. You know, Mont- Montreal had, you know, it was, it was a cool place to be, and Puerto Rico was really hot and humid and didn't really care for it too much. But RFK for me, that was my, that was my favorite. You know, um, I didn't have a chance to really play in the new one too much. Uh, only a handful of games before I got hurt. But even though RFK was so old, it still had a lot of character. And I love that. You know, it was, it was, it was something special. And for us to be, you know, play there and be a part of um, history was, you know, that, that was a cool place to be. So the 2021 Nationals, as we tape this, are in the middle of a big time winning streak in June. And of course, 2005 Nationals had a 10-game winning streak, still the record for the club, and that occurred in June, and that's what set you guys off, and all of a sudden, you're in first place. Best record in baseball at the All-Star break. I didn't look this up, but I feel like you had the save in at least nine of those 10 games, because they were all like (laughs) one-run games. They were crazy. 
What do you remember about that streak in particular and how tight those games were? It's not like you were blowing teams out. You were winning those games by the skin of your teeth every night. Yeah, I mean, I remember that one. I think it was one game in particular when actually I think it was just right after you came off that winning streak. We were playing the Angels. Um, it was a one nothing game. It was an ESPN Wednesday night game, and it was one nothing game, and that was typical for us. You know, I think we had just come back from Texas, and where I think every game was close. Um, but we knew for us, like we weren't going to score a whole lot of runs. We had a lot of a lot of veteran guys on the team who were, who were in their twilight years as far as playing goes. Guys understood we weren't we weren't going to get a whole lot of production out of whole, whole, those guys. So what we got was was going to be great. And we just had as pitchers, we had to go out there and, and do everything we can to, to hold them into as least amount of runs as, as possible. So, and we also too, what helped was we kind of fed off each other. Levo got us going. He had a shoot an, an, ama- an amazing year that year, you know, being one of the first all-stars um, along, alongside myself, but he's the one who kind of led that group and seeing him going, you know, day in, day out, you see how he worked. Every fifth day when he had got the ball, you knew that he was going to go deep in the game. And I think for us as pitchers, we saw that and we never we didn't want to let him down. We're talking with former Nationals reliever, maybe the best reliever in Nationals history, Chad Cordero. Your numbers for that 2005 season really were tremendous. 47 to 54 on saves, ERA of 182, whip a 0.97. What went well for you that season? My fastball was actually glow in the zone, even though it was about 88 miles an hour. I think that's what really helped me. You know, um, I wasn't a real big stuff guy. I didn't, I didn't throw hard. I wasn't like the guys nowadays throwing 100 miles an hour as closer. I was a closer throwing 88, 90, maybe 91 on occasion. And I was able to keep the, my fastball down because I didn't really throw a whole lot of other stuff. I had a slider and a changeup, but my fastball, I probably threw 98, 90, 99% of the time. So for me to be able to keep the ball down, locate it, that's really what it was. I wasn't going to overpower guys. I wasn't going to going to be able to throw my 88 mile an hour fastball right down the middle. That ball wouldn't come back. So I really had a focus on mixing my uh, the pitches in and out, up and down, and and really that, that's what led to my successes. Was that entire year I was able to do that. Your fastball may not have been 90, but you finished fifth in the Cy Young race that year and 14th in the MVP race. You got MVP votes for saving 47 games for a team that was in the race most of the year. So you were doing something right. Now, your manager through all that, who had a lot of confidence in you, I think because he knew you wouldn't get rattled when you'd load the bases in the ninth in a one nothing game, you could still get your way out of it, even when you'd slip off the mound, I remember at one point. Yep, against the Angels. So Frank Robinson, give me a Frank Robinson story that maybe we haven't heard before, if there is one. Oh, um, right after I got drafted by the Expos, they flew me out to New York to go meet the team before I headed down to uh, Brevard County. An A-ball. And so I flew out there. They're playing the Mets. They put me up in the team hotel. It was myself, my dad, both my brothers were out there. And I got to throw a bullpen. I hadn't thrown a bullpen in probably be, probably about 10 days since I got back from the College World Series. So I get there and I know who Frank Robinson is. I mean, I, I see him in the in the clubhouse. My dad was a huge Frank Robinson fan. So I I knew all about him. And so when I met him, I was like, I didn't realize how tall he was. And even like when he was kind of hunched over, he was still like, he was a very intimidating person. And then I shook his hand and he like his hand pretty much engulfed my entire tiny hand, which even made me even more scared. But I remember going out to the bullpen, like nervous, my legs are shaking, my whole body is like nervous. I'm like, I have no idea what's about to happen as far as that bullpen goes. And I remember throwing a 20 pitch bullpen, nothing but fastballs as usual. I think I threw 19 of them in the dirt. (laughs) And I remember and my dad came up to me afterwards. He was like, Frank just said, is this really our first round pick (laughs) to all the front office? And I was like, well, I'm never going to see, never going to meet, meet him ever again in my entire career. So that was a nice, quick career. And 
luckily for my for me, you know, it turned out to be pretty decent. But I thought right then and there that I had just ruined my entire chance of ever playing for the Montreal Expos. <laughs> Bullpen usage is so interesting. I wonder about your relationship slash communication with Frank in that regard. You got used a lot in that 2005 season. I mean, you, you would have a stretch of like six appearances in seven days, that sort of a thing. You logged a good number of innings. I mean, over a four-season stretch, 04 through 07, you were 70-plus innings each season. What was it like trying to communicate with your manager about, hey, I'm good to go this day, I'm not good to go that day? I mean, pretty clearly, you embraced being utilized quite a bit. Right, yeah. And for me, for me, it was just Frank was, if he came up and said, hey, I need you I need you for an hour, I need you for two outs, yeah, I got you. I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do. You know, I, I didn't I didn't want, want to let Frank down because he had he's the one who had all the confidence in me. He's the one who stuck with me when I during my struggles early on. So whenever he asked, "Hey, are, are you good to go?" I'm like, "Yeah, I, I got you. Even if even if, even if I have to just throw off fastballs and at 80 miles an hour, I'll do whatever I need to do to get to get what however many outs you need." And I, I love that. You know, I I'm not one who likes to sit around for too long. I don't even like sitting around for a day without having to go in. So if I had a chance to go in every day, I was gonna I was gonna you know embrace it and do whatever everything I could to not let Frank down. So you mentioned that you didn't really get to pitch a lot at the new ballpark. And I remember opening night uh, against the Braves, 2008. It's a close game. You guys are up maybe a run going into the ninth. And we're all looking for you to come in. And all of a sudden, it's John Rouch instead. And we're like, what's going on here? Something's up. And it turned out that you had uh, hurt your shoulder. And I'm not sure that we had any reason to believe that it was serious at the time. It turned out that really affected your career. Did you know or could you have imagined at that moment what that actually was going on, and what that would have meant for your career? I had no idea. All I knew was before uh, or during batting practice of that first game, I felt a sharp pain go from my shoulder down to my elbow. And I hadn't felt that before. I had never been on the DL. I never, I had never been hurt in my entire career. So I really had no idea like what that meant. I had taken some kinesiology classes. So I kind of had an idea of what might've been, but still at the same time, I had no idea like well, how serious it, it was. And it turned out, I mean, I had the frame of the labrum, a torn labrum and a torn bicep. And then when I came back to pitch a couple of weeks later, I ended up tearing my lat as well. So at that time, I had no idea like how serious it was. I just felt a sharp pain and I thought, okay, maybe I'll be going to DL for maybe for two weeks and come back, go down rehab, come back and I'll be good to go. I, I never, I never thought that it would be basically the kiss of death. You know, my, my career would, would never be the same. The art of being a closer is so interesting. You have done it. Where do you stand on the issue of the ninth inning versus other innings for relievers? Is the ninth inning truly different or is getting three outs in an inning the same in a seventh or eighth inning as in the ninth inning? Um, for me, it was it never changed, but a lot of guys make it a lot more difficult than, than what it needs to be. You know, yes, it's a, it's a ninth thing. You have, you have to get those last three outs to, to secure your win. But at the same time, if you're a seventh inning guy, you still have to get those three outs before they tire. Go ahead. It's the same thing as a ninth. But so I think a lot of guys end up putting a lot more pressure on themselves because it is the ninth inning. It is the last inning. You played all eight all eight innings previously to get to that point, and now it's your job to to secure that that win. But for me, I never changed my mindset. No, no matter what inning I came in, I was a mop up guy when I first came up. Then I was a, then I was a setup man, and nothing changed for me. But a lot of guys they end up they put too much pressure on themselves because it is the ninth inning. Everybody's watching you. They're watching you. You have to do everything you can to secure that lead. And I think some guys, they just, they don't know how to handle that pressure. And it, it does take a special person and someone who can forget really, you know, easily and not get rattled too much. But at the same, same time, it is still pitching. You still have to get 
three outs, no, no matter what inning you're in. And that's why Frank trusted you. In spite of that first bullpen session, <laughs> he learned that you wouldn't get rattled in the ninth inning once you got past that first time. So this franchise has gone through a lot, obviously, in 17 years now. They won a World Series, but they've been to the playoffs a lot of times. There's been a lot of star players and some pretty big name closers that have come here, too. What does it mean to you that you still do have the most saves in club history? That's got to mean something to you. <laughs> I'm honestly surprised. For the longest time, I thought Drew was, was, was going to end up breaking it. He's the guy that they had groomed to take over after, after I was done. And unfortunately, he had, he, I got hurt. I never had a chance to, to play with him. But then Joel came in and did a heck of a job. But for the longest time, I thought Drew was going to come in and, and break it. And then I was kind of surprised when it, when it didn't happen. So for it to still be 16 years later and me being at the top, I'm, I'm excited. I, I kind of like it. But at the same time, I'm like, is someone ever going to come up and, and break it? Like, that'd be great. I wouldn't be mad if it didn't. But I would like to see somebody do it because that means they have a stable closer. I think that's really what's been missing with the Nationals. They haven't really had anybody who was stable. They had, obviously, Sean did, a, did an amazing job that for that short time he was there. And too bad that he, he wasn't able to work out something to come back. I thought he could have he could have easily done it because he's, he's very reliable. You know, you know what, it, what you're, what you're going to get with him day in and day out. But I'm a little surprised and kind of happy it hasn't broken. But at the same time, I would like to see it. I mean, it's like I said, like some, they have a stable closer. And I, I think that's, that's what they, they need somebody like that. Well, and it's a credit to you because saves are obviously a team dependent stat. If you're not on a very good team, you're not getting a lot of saves. You got a lot of saves. And let's be honest, you weren't on a bunch of great Nationals teams. So I think that says a lot about the job that you did. Do you stay in touch with uh, any of your teammates from that 2005 team or, you know, in that era of Nationals baseball? Not too much. I keep, um, I keep up with Dimitri every now and then. He's coaching a high school team out, out this way. So I've been keeping track of what he's going, touch base with him every now and then. Same with Joel Hanrahan, keep track with him. Zach Day every now and then. But not not too much. I mean, we're all kind of doing our own thing. And if But if we run into each other, it's like old times again. But I think with our schedules and, oh, Brian Snyder every now and then too. But not too much, not too much, not as much as I would have liked with everybody. But um, it's like I said, you know, we all, but when we get together, it's just, you know, it's like old times again. So you and Schneider got to share a pretty big moment many years later before game three of the World Series. Number one, what did you think when you were asked to throw out the first pitch for the first World Series game in D.C.? And then number two, were you more nervous for that or for the original bullpen session in front of Frank? Oh, I don't know. Probably the original bullpen session, yeah. even though the World Series one, like the minute I got off the plane, like I was I was acting like all cool. And like, I, I got this and I remember like my friends and like my, my family, and my fiance were like, it's just you're just throwing a pitch. I'm like. It's a World Series. Like, if I mess up, like, I'm going to, I'm never going to show my face ever again. <laughs> so I remember leading up to it, I was fine. And then the day of when I'm, when we're flying out there and I'm like, my, my hands start to shake. And so, like, the entire time, even up until after I threw the pitch, my hand was shaking and my palm was like super sweaty. And so I thought for the longest time that because my palm is sweaty, the ball was going to slip and there's going to be nowhere near Snyder. <laughs> I mean, it was still up, up and in. I would have probably would have hit somebody in the head if I, if it was somebody was, was hitting against me, but. It was, I was nervous. I was really nervous. So you weren't using a spider tack? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's one thing I am very proud of. I had never used. When you were pitching, was that a thing? Guys using, you know, sticky stuff, pine tar, whatever it may be to get better grips on baseball? Or is this whole controversy something that's foreign to you? <laughs> there's guys using some stuff. I don't know exactly what they were using, but there's guys using some, some stuff. It's just, you know, I think it's, it's like a lot of what a lot of players have said that's been around for a long time. And I never use it. I'm proud of the fact that I, that I never used it. For me, it just it didn't do anything for me. So I, I was glad I would go up, put up my my 88 mile an hour fastball up against anybody, you know, with, without anything. So 
but you know, it was, it was, there was stuff around back then. It's like anything, you know, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, guys are always trying to find some way to get an advantage um, one way or another. In your later years here, you've gone into some coaching. I know at the college level, also in the minor league level, what's that been like and how have you found today's pitchers being receptive to, to your coaching advice? <laughs> well, I'm kind of, I'm coaching softball now. So now I've gone away from baseball. So I, but I've been a coach with Fullerton for a couple of years. And then I went coach with the Reds for two years. And, it, you know, it was, it's a different, different game. You know, it's, it's different to see, you know, guys are more worried about velocity than actually pitching. And with me, with my background of not throwing very hard and relying on, on pitching and not velocity, it's tough to watch sometimes too. Now I see guys, yeah, they're throwing hard, but they're throwing balls like right over the middle of the plate. They have no idea where it's going. Even in the Caldwell series, I was watching it. You know, guys are, are leaving fastballs. They're trying to go throw some a fastball away to a righty and it ends up running over the back back to the middle of the plate. And it's happening, it's happening almost every pitch. And and before as before, you know, when you had guys like Maddox and, and, and Glavin, they were control guys. And I love that kind of stuff. So seeing the game as it is now, it's a, it's a, it's different. It's something to get used to. It's awesome to see guys throwing a lot harder now, but it's still it's Saturday. It's very sad to me seeing that guys don't know how to pitch anymore. Well, you pitched well. And you, I know you are very fondly remembered by so many Nationals fans. It's great to catch up with you. Chad Cordero, number one among Nationals relievers since the franchise came to D.C. in terms of save. Number two in the history of the franchise. It's great to have you on, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Two balls and two strikes. Here's the set and the pitch. Strike three call to the outside corner. This game is over. A fastball at 89 miles an hour gets Chase Utley looking. To end the ball game and at 9.46 Eastern Time on April the 6th, 2005. There is the first victory in the history of the Washington Nationals. Highlighted by Brad Wilkerson becoming the 26th player in Major League history to hit for the cycle twice in his young career. Our thanks to Chad Cordero for joining us here on the Nats Chat Podcast. A lot of good stuff that Chad had to say. He is not shy when it comes to his opinion on the way guys pitch here in 2021. It's always kind of funny to me, Mark, how the pitchers of yesteryear are never in love with the pitchers of today, but that's just kind of how the cycle of life goes. But in doing that interview, I know for me, it it really did make me appreciate the job that Cordero did. We had a conversation a few weeks back when the Nats were playing the Reds. I asked you, who is the best reliever in Nationals history, because we talked about Sean Doolittle, and, you know, there are other contenders for that. You could say Tyler Clippard, you know, some might throw Drew Storen into the mix. Cordero is very much a part of that conversation with what he did in 2005 and what he did in the ensuing seasons. He, at times, I guess, can get forgotten because it did fade fast. He got injured and he was, you know, basically never heard from again. But for a brief period of time, that guy was about as good as you had in the National League in terms of back into the bullpen arms. When he would come into a game in 2005 for the ninth inning, and they were usually only up one run because that team did not score a lot of runs, and it was three to two every night, kind of similar at times to this one. There was never a doubt. As a beat writer, for those who don't know, you're writing your game story as it's happening, and you have to have it finished as soon as the final out is made. And so you have to anticipate things at times, and sometimes you have to be prepared to rewrite it if the game changes in the ninth inning. And I'll tell you, back then, I never really had to think too much about rewriting a Chad Cordero appearance. Maybe you were going to have to insert a paragraph to explain that he loaded the bases with nobody out, but then you still felt like he was going to get out of it somehow. And what he had, because he didn't have great stuff, as we talked about, he barely hit 90 miles an hour. 
but he had command, kind of a little bit of Palo Espino in him. And he had that quality that I don't know how you describe it, but it's what makes certain relievers thrive in the ninth inning and certain ones just not able to do it. It's that steel-faced, didn't matter how many runners on base, what the crowd is doing, who's at the plate. It was always the same with him. And he's just a really chill guy to begin with. And that really helped him on the mound in those spots. He was never phased by any situation. And to me, that is what makes a great closer. It's not about the velocity. It's not about the stuff. It's not even about, we think of them sometimes as these like crazy men. Sometimes it's the calmest ones who are best at it. And Chad Cordero was great at that. Yes, I think like with all the things we can measure, one thing that you never hear talked about as being measured, but I think would be so interesting to measure would be like heart rate. And in times of high stress, high tension, are you able to literally keep your heart rate down and stay calm? Because we know some guys cannot do that. And the guys who I think thrive the most, especially in those high pressure situations, are the people who like literally, I know this can sound kind of funny, but you keep your heart rate down. You control your breathing, like almost like a Lamaze class or something like that. But like I know in uh, in MMA, that's a big thing for UFC fighters. Right before a big fight, you got to control your breathing. Don't get all like anxious about what's happening. And I think the great closers can do something like that. And it would not shock me at all if like those are categories in which Chad Cordero excelled. The 2005 Nationals are so interesting. It's a team that started off 50 and 31 over the first 81, then went 31 and 50 over the remaining 81. And when we talk about run differential, the 2005 Nats are a fascinating case study because the run differential screamed during the national success in the first half of that season that this team is a house of cards and this team isn't nearly as good as the record says. Understand when the Nats that season were 50 and 31, I mean, 50 and 31, an awesome record, 19 games above 500. The run differential was plus two and the run differential was like a flashing neon sign saying, this isn't going to (laughs) last and this team isn't nearly as good as that record says. And sure enough, the Nats ended up falling in the second half of that season. But that team has nothing to be ashamed of. That was like a ragamuffin, you know, a gang of misfits almost. You know, Major League Baseball, right, had owned the team. The team had no business having any success, and yet it did. And it made things fun, and it obviously brought baseball back to D.C. And it's a team that I don't think any Nationals fan, any Washington, D.C. baseball fan will ever forget. And you know who knew what you just said? You know who knew it? it was Frank Robinson. He wouldn't say it publicly. He knew that that was not going to last. He knew they didn't score enough runs. He knew the pitching was not going to hold up in the long term. And maybe if they'd been able to go out and make some bigger acquisitions, add more payroll, they were under MLB's role. They had a $50 million payroll that year. So they were not in a position to be adding big pieces. They traded for Preston Wilson and Mike Stanton and stuff like that. Frank knew it. And I think it hurt him because he knew that might have been his last chance to go to the playoffs as a manager. And as fun and as exciting as that first half was, He knew it was going to catch up to them eventually, and it did, and it made for a very disappointing second half. But boy, I think most fans, and I think even the players from that team, don't really have any regrets about it because it was such a fun year. For them, it was so unexpected. They're just thrilled to be in a new city with fans cheering for them, and then to get off to that start and all of a sudden be right in the middle of this thing and have attention on them and have RFK bouncing up and down every night. That's what they all remember. And they don't remember the fact that they went 31 and 50 the rest of the way. 
I think they all have fond memories that season. I think most fans have really fond memories that season as well. It was a magical year for so many reasons. Just to have Major League Baseball back in D.C. I mean, I grew up in this area. I've lived here my whole life. The notion of Major League Baseball in D.C., it was like it was one of these far-fetched things, you know, pie in the sky that baseball would ever come back here. So to have it back here, beginning with that 05 season, something I and I know many people listening will never take for granted. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the Nats chat podcast, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats chat podcast, contact the man behind all of this, Tim Shovers. Nats chat podcast t-shirts remain available. The Paolo Espino t-shirts are coming, the secret weapon. And boy, are those t-shirt orders going to skyrocket if Paolo does, as I know he's going to do against Clayton Kershaw come Saturday night. But for now, Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts. Get yours by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. Another thank you to all of you for your continued support of the Nats Chat Podcast. The uh, latest Apple podcast rankings in the U.S. baseball category. This humble podcast, number 18 in the country. Top 20 in the country. So thank you for your continued support. Please spread the word. Uh, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. It helps out a lot. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. There's the pitch swung on, hit of the year to deep left. This may go. It is good. Goodbye. Bang, zoom goes Jordy Mercer. His first RBI of the season comes on his first home run in a Nationals uniform. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.